for Junior Church. And I'd like us to turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look this morning at the second half. And in a few weeks we'll come back to the first half of 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. And I'd like us to begin reading in verse 17. In the following directives I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. And I believe that is a statement of sarcasm on Paul's part there. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For as you eat, each goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry. Another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if you were looking for encouragement this morning, it's probably not a passage of scripture that you would have turned to. To say, uh, I want to read the first Six or seven verses of this uh, passage of Scripture as a means of daily encouragement. Okay, it's a rather strong passage of Scripture that addresses a vital issue in the church that comes up on a regular, habitual, or repeated basis in church life. It has to do with, as its topic, the centrality of the Lord's table to the Christian community. The basic thought that I want to go after this morning is this. In remembrance of me is the reason we participate in the Lord's table. Now, I've been to a couple of memorials in my lifetime. Two in particular captured my attention. In 1985, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel. And when we were there, we visited a place called the Israeli Holocaust Museum. I would say that the Holocaust Museum in Israel is probably one of the most sobering places I have ever been to in my life. Uh, It is a place that is marked by a certain grief, by silent crowds, remembering while sharing this common sense of responsibility for what happened. Because most countries in retrospect realized that we didn't do all that we could have done. And if we had done all that we could have done sooner, we could have averted or avoided the death of many. So 
that Holocaust Museum because of the, the millions of people that were killed and their memory is kind of captured in that shrine, if you will. It is a place where when you walk in, your mind is automatically prompted to remember the loss of six million plus lives. And you remember with some sense of grief or sorrow. I remember the first time I went to the uh, Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C., had watched a movie about the building of that monument. And I, I anticipated in going that it would be certainly a sobering experience. Its purpose is to provoke in your mind the death of tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers. Loss of life in an effort to protect the country that you and I are blessed to live in. I remember the sense of just being overcome watching people who at that memorial were placing pieces of paper over the names etched in marble, shading the name with a pencil because it was bringing back into their mind remembrance of sacrifice for that individual's benefit. Two memorials that have a sobering implication. And there are many others around our country that you could go to or probably have been to. Some have probably stood on the battlefields of Gettysburg. And it is enshrined as a place that will never be built upon because it is a memorial, if you will. It is a place that when you go there, it is to bring back to your memory sacrifices that have been made so that you are filled with gratitude for what others have done for you. That's the essence of memorials. When we come to the Lord's table, it has an essence to it that is given by Christ. The essence of the Lord's table is to remember the cross work of the Savior. It is central to what we are about as the body of Christ. It is the means by which we become part of the body of Christ. Through the suffering of the physical body of Christ, you and I are forgiven and given a place in this new Unity or union that God is building called the church of Christ. That church is built on the foundation of what Jesus Christ did through his shed blood at Calvary. And it's shocking that when you come into 1 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 17, Paul, in a discussion about the Lord's Supper, and you know that in, if you have the New International Version or a study Bible, you have a heading there that says something like the Lord's Supper or in reference to communion. So you would think that as you move ahead, it's going to get into the glorious and rich details of what Christ has done for us and the wonderful impact of that on our lives and how it affects us when we gather together to do this. But what you find in the text is something completely different. And if, if it is anything, it is shocking to read this passage of Scripture. Perhaps one of the strongest passages of rebuke in the New Testament. And start to ask the question, why? And I think the simple answer is this. Paul's goal in addressing the topic of communion, and, and let me give you just this definition of communion. Communion is when we together, in spite of our past, remember Christ's cross work as the only basis of our forgiveness, salvation from sin, and inclusion in God's family. Okay, at the Lord's table, we together, in spite of our past, irregardless, 
remember the cross work of Christ as the sole basis for our forgiveness, salvation from sin, and inclusion in the family of God. That's, that's the topic Paul's addressing. A celebration of what is central to us being in Christ and being part of His body. I believe that the thrust of this passage from 17 down through verse 32 is this. Guard and protect the observance of the Lord's table in your church. Okay? Guard, protect the observance of the Lord's table in your church life. Okay? And I think Paul does that in a couple of different ways. And the one question that might come to mind is, if we are to guard the Lord's table in terms of church life, how would we accomplish that? Okay, how will we accomplish protecting this ordinance that we observe in our church family on a monthly basis? How do we make sure that it retains its meaning? That it doesn't become simply a routine that we go through? How does it remain a vital, life-giving remembering of what Christ has done for us? How does that happen? And I believe there are just three simple things that we can remember that will help us to then. And each one's going to come from one of each of the three paragraphs that are dealt with in this section of Scripture. First of all, I think we need to remember from verse 18. Let's, let's just pick up in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. That is a statement that makes me not want to go further. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. There is a greater negative in the observance of the Lord's table at Corinth than there is a positive. You've got to ask the question then, why? Verse 18. Paul says, in the first place, I hear. So he has had someone come from the church who has been interacting with him about what's going on in Corinth. And he says, uh, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church. Okay, and this is critical that you understand this. When you come together as an assembly of people in the name of Christ, as a church, there are divisions among you. And then he says this. And to some extent, I believe it. In other words, when Paul heard that there were divisions in the church in Corinth, he didn't blow it off and say, you know what, I doubt it. I really doubt it. He knew that this church had characteristics, had habits within it that made it believable. And it's for that reason that he's going to write to them very strongly. The divisions are probably not a new occurrence in the church in Corinth. They seem to be somewhat normative. Paul, as an apostle, can't abide that. So he's going to challenge the church about unity and relationship to the Lord's table. Now, I think it's important that as we look at this, we understand the nature of these meals that were being taken in the first century church. How many of you ever heard of love feast in the New Testament? How many of you have ever heard that phrase? Okay, you might be thinking, where is that mentioned in the New Testament? The place that it's mentioned is in Jude chapter 12, okay, or Jude verse 12. And it's a takeoff from what's happening in the book of Acts, where the church is gathering together, Acts 2, on a regular basis. And what are they doing? They're breaking bread and sharing meals together. Because in the New Testament time, as much in our time, when you shared a meal with someone, what you were saying is, we have something in common. Okay? We have a common bond. We have a common set of affections. We share life together. Okay? So, in that time there was typically a large meal that was enjoyed and then added on to the end of it was an observance or a remembrance of the body of Christ and of the blood of Christ. 
Okay, so it, it appears that it was a meal that then had an added dimension to it when the church gathered of remembering Christ. Okay, all of which is well and fine. Table fellowship is a wonderful thing. When you invite people into your house and share with them a meal from what you have, you're saying to them, I have an appreciation for you. I have an affection for you. We have common desires, common goals. You're, in a sense, putting your arms around them, figuratively speaking, and say, I include you in my circle of friends. Okay, so that's the idea that is being given when you bring this kind of meal together. However, Paul says when you get together in verse 18, there are divisions. The word here is, in the Greek, it's schisma, which obviously we get our English word schisms from that word. There are, in the body, in the relationships, there are fractures. Okay, there are people that are on the outside and people that are on the inside. There is an in crowd and there is an out crowd in the church in Corinth. Okay, and that's what Paul is going to point at. Now, I want you to notice what he says next, okay? Verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, which is a strong statement, isn't it? They're gathering for communion, having a meal, and then they're going to share communion afterwards. They're doing it on a regular basis. But when Paul writes, he says, when you gather together for the Lord's table, it's not the Lord's table that you're observing. What is he saying? You're sitting there having communion, but it's not communion. Okay, meaning what you're doing in name is not what you are doing in reality. Okay? So the first thought, if we're going to preserve the Lord's table for its God-intended purpose, I think we need to realize first that there is the sad possibility of problems at communion. Okay, there is this possibility of having problems when the church gathers for communion that it really may not be that at all. Now, something important in understanding this text is to get your arms a little bit around the social structures of the ancient world. Okay, in the ancient world, there really wasn't a middle class. There were rich people, and there were poor people. There were free people, and you'll, th you'll think of these terms as you think about Scripture. Free people, and there were slaves. There were Jews, and there were Greeks. There were barbarians, uh, or I'm sorry, Jews and Gentiles, and then there were barbarians, and then there were Greeks. People that were classy and people that weren't. People that were wealthy and people that weren't. People that were free and people that, that weren't. But in the context of the church, what happened? All right, everybody comes into the body of Christ on the same basis, right? Nobody buys their way into the kingdom of God. All right, we all come recognizing that we're sinners in need of God's grace and provision, and we find a personal relationship with Him by grace through faith, in spite of our social status, in spite of our worldly accomplishments. <clears throat> the problem in Corinth is something like this. The people are gathering together to have a meal. But as, as Paul analyzes it, you, you begin to realize that he's saying this. There is pride in the church that is leading to schisms or divisions. A hurtful kind of pride that allowed some people to see themselves as better or more blessed than others. And in that sense, what was happening? The church was acting just like the world that it was in. The church wasn't distinct. Why? Because in the context of church life, there was this gathering together for a meal, 
Okay, and then look at verse 21. After he says, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, he gives the reason for saying that. He says, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. In some translations, a little bit more accurately, it says something like this. Each of you goes ahead eating your own private meal. Okay? Now, part of you might say, okay, what would the problem with that be? Okay, and I think you'll understand it in just one minute. Okay? So, people get together. They're eating a meal. Each of you is eating his own private meal. The idea is that, that some are eating with disregard for others. What kind of a meal was this? What kind of a meal was this love fellowship where people gathered together, probably in the courtyard of a wealthier person's house? What kind of a meal was it? It was very much like what we do, potluck dinner kind of thing. Everybody would bring what they were able to bring, which meant this. You had some extremely wealthy people who could bring filet mignon to the meal. And that you had some extremely poor people who had barely been able to eat all week. They're in the slave class, very poor. Then the church comes together and they put all of their resources on a table. That's the way it was supposed to be. But in Corinth, something strange was happening. The church made up of rich and poor, slave and free, was gathered together. And Paul says, as you eat, one goes ahead without waiting for anybody else, partakes in their private meal. And, and the likelihood is that the very wealthy were sharing the food of the wealthy and the very poor were left to deal with the food of the poor. And you can begin to imagine what kind of an emotional or mental impact that would have on those that were poor in the body of Christ at that time. It would start to set up divisions of, of good people in the church and bad people in the church, of rich people in the church and poor people in the church. And Paul... You can sense Paul is at a boiling point when he writes this. He's upset with a, uh, what I would call like a, a holy sense of discontentment with what they're doing. He says, one remains hungry and another gets drunk, which is probably a bit of an overstatement for the sake of the point. Some of you are overeating and overdrinking, while there are others who can't even get enough to get satisfaction in their stomach. And, and as Paul responds to this statement for why it's really not the Lord's Supper. He says this, verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? And the next statement is the one that I think really captures the problem. Do you despise the church of God? Which is what? And this is where the assembly of God movement gets the name of their movement. The church is what? It is the assembly of God. It is the church of God. It is people who gather together in the name of Christ, who come on a common basis, and who in Christ have a common standing. God, folks, does not see rich and poor. God does not see well-educated and uneducated. He does not see slave and free. One of the biggest challenges that we have in India with the church planting movement that Victor John is involved in is this issue of caste system. Because in the church, the message is this. There is no caste system. Because in Christ, we all come. We all come on the same footing. It doesn't matter how much sin in your past or how religious and spiritual of a life you've had. We all come before God on the same basis. And Paul said that the, the attitude of superiority that was being carried out in meals when less wealthy people were not allowed to participate in the food of the wealthy... Paul's word is just, I think, just very strong in verse 22. Do you despise the house of God and humiliate? The idea is to, to denigrate or to demean, to hurt those 
Blessed are your brothers and sisters in Christ because of a selfish preference for one's personal needs at the expense of how it affects others. Okay, so the first thing Paul goes after is the sad possibility of problems at communion. Pride that leads to divisions. A sense of, hey, I'm of this class. They're the people I mix with. Paul says that shouldn't be the way it is in the church. And then there is this selfishness that was demeaning and clearly hurtful to the church. And I, I think it's, it's, it's very strong in how Paul says this. Do you despise God's poor? I think that's a good way to take this. Do you despise the church of God? Do you despise those that have less than you? God's poor. What is Paul doing? He is impressing upon the church in Corinth that when they gather together, every one of them is a son or daughter of God. Every one of them has a personal relationship with him based upon the grace that Jesus Christ has provided. And I think Paul's conclusion out of this first paragraph, very simply at the beginning of verse 20, is this. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now they could say, okay, we're going to gather together today, have a love feast, and after we're going to have communion. During the love feast, they draw all kinds of lines in the church. Those that have and those that don't have. Those that are slave and those that are free. Those that are well-educated and those that are not. And the church is all split up along all these social lines that were common in the day. Paul says, I have news for you, church. When you get together and you partake of the Lord's Supper, it is only that in name. It is not that in reality. Because in partaking of it, you are literally humiliating people. You are denigrating and demeaning people who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. So if I'm going to protect the Lord's table, the first thing I need to realize, it is possible that when we experience the Lord's table together, that there are problems of pride and selfishness that could be creeping into our hearts in ways that may be different than they are in Corinth, and yet it is possible that it can happen. Barclay said this. He said, A church where social class and distinctions exist is no true church at all. Because the church is the one place or was the one place in the ancient world where barriers were torn down. Folks, let that settle into your heart. The church was one place in the ancient world where barriers, moral barriers, financial barriers, freedom barriers were destroyed. Because when the church gathered together, we are the body of Christ. And we're, if we're going to protect this institution called the Lord's Table, which is more important than most of us tend to realize, if we're going to protect it, we need to realize that there is the possibility of problems creeping in. And I think we can kind of summarize that first thought by saying this. My attitude towards my brothers and sisters in Christ is critical in my relationship with God. It is critical in my relationship with God and in my appreciation for the cross work of Christ. Now, let's look then at verse 23. And he begins with the word for, which shows that he's giving a logical connection between what he says at the end of verse 22. He says, shall I praise you in this, in this gathering for the Lord's Supper? He says, absolutely not. He says, there is no way that I could put a stamp of approval upon your experience in the context of the Lord's Supper. Because it is connected to a feast that humiliates others. So Paul says, I have no praise for you. Certainly not. For. Okay, which means that there's a, now a logical connection to the next issue. Okay, there's abuse of the Lord's table. But now verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. 
Okay, now, what is it that Paul's going to talk about? You already know because I read it. He's going to talk about the church's observance of the Lord's Supper. He's going to tell them here that I am giving to you this biblical observance of the Lord's table, God's method and God's purpose for the observance of the Lord's table. And what is his main point? His main point is this. This observance of the Lord's table did not originate in humanity. Okay, Paul says, it, it doesn't come from me. I received it from the Lord, and in the same way that I received it, in the, the original language, the idea is, I passed it on unaltered. I passed it on without adjustments. I gave you exactly what Jesus Christ said to his disciples, which becomes extremely powerful. And the reason that he disagrees with how the Corinthian church is observing the Lord's table and experiencing relationships together is because it is in complete contrast to what the Savior intended when he gave the Lord's table. So if I'm going to protect the Lord's table, here's the second thought. I need to remember the original God-given purpose of communion. Okay, and it's very simple. If I'm going to protect what this is about when we receive this as a church family, I need to remember why he gave it. Okay, and that I think is unfolded very clearly. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus... In the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you do it, in remembrance of me. Okay, so, what becomes clear? The first thing that I think becomes clear is this. The purpose of the Lord's table. Original, God-given purpose is twofold, okay? It is to remember Christ's self-giving for our sin, okay? It is to remember Christ's self-giving, his self-sacrifice in consequence or as a result of what he knew would be our sinfulness, okay? So when we come to the Lord's table, what is it about? It is about remembering that the Savior went to the cross and paid the price for our sin so that we could be free from it. When did that happen? When did the first Lord's table originate? I want you to notice in the text what he says. The Lord Jesus, on the night, and if you want want to just write this in, it is while he was being betrayed. Okay? So the first communion service took place while the betrayer was out about getting together a group of people to come and betray the Savior. Okay, while Jesus was serving the Lord's Supper, on his mind was his self-giving sacrifice. And that to me is powerful. As he breaks the bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you. In process, already set in motion, is a series of events that will lead to his crucifixion and shedding of blood on Calvary's cross. So when I remember the original purpose, it is to remember the self-giving of Christ for my sin. It will change everything for me as I come to the Lord's table, I believe. And what I want you to notice is that in verse 24 and in verse 25, you see these words. Do this, do this. Okay? Those two words are in what we call in the original language the imperative. They are commands for the church to remember that while he was being 
betrayed and given over, he was willingly giving to his disciples an illustration of his cross work. Okay? Very, very powerful connection. Do this in the imperative. And, and you, you're going to notice whenever that word in the middle of verse 25, do this whenever you drink it. And then verse 26, for whenever you drink it. The idea of the word whenever is every time. Okay, which means what? That when I come to the Lord's table, I need to kind of pull up and just stop and say every time I do this, I need to remember the purpose of these elements. And the purpose of these elements is to remind me that the body of my Savior was broken to pay for my sin and that the blood of Christ was spilt, was shed, so that by His life, I might find life. Okay, so we need to remember the purposes the God-given purposes of the communion table. The second purpose is this. It is to proclaim Christ's self-giving as the sole basis for Christian forgiveness, hope, and unity. Look at verse 26. And you're going to find again the word for, which shows again there's just this connection back to a true expression of the Lord's Supper. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, so they get done their big meal where they have slighted each other, caused division in the body of Christ, and then they sit down to partake of this. Paul says, what you're doing is not the Lord's table. You may have the elements there, but it in no way resembles what Christ gave. Why? Because when you do this, the true Lord's table, what is happening? You are proclaiming or preaching the death of Christ as the payment for our sin, or if you want to say it this way, the death of Christ as the only basis for forgiveness amongst rich and poor, slave and free, Greeks and barbarians, doesn't matter. No matter where you come from this morning, the sole basis for your relationship with God is Jesus Christ. It's not your religious performance. It's not the good life that you've lived. It's not the sins that you've avoided. If you're here this morning and you look back on your life and you say, Tim, my history is so messed up, I find it embarrassing and shameful. You need to remember that you come to this table based on the shed blood of Christ alone. And every Christian here, every individual here who was saved younger, who was delivered by the grace of God from a life of sin, is only so by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. Do you see? So that when we come together, we have one thing in common. You know what it is? That the blood of Christ has washed away our sin. Folks, that's why divisions in the body of Christ are so damaging. It's why organizing around financial status or social status or, 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 or what one has and those sorts of things is so damaging. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are that because on the eve in which and while he was being betrayed, he took bread and allowed his body to be broken. He took the cup and allowed his, his blood to be spilled. So that you and I could be part of this new community that in Corinth they were destroying, tearing apart, dismantling. Paul says, remember, the purpose for the Lord's table was to demonstrate that you're one. So how can you get together and have these cliques and things like that when you're all on the same page because of what Christ has done? We all come on the same basis in spite of our past. Communion serves as a constant reminder that we are all sinners, if you know Christ, who have been saved by grace. 
generous, Christ-like sharing in the face of being rejected is the mark of the true church. He gave for us, for our benefit. And one of the, the phrases in, this, uh, in these two statements of Christ, this is my body, which is for you. This is the cup of, in the new covenant of my blood, which is for you. Okay, that theme that emerges, that for you theme, to me is so powerful. Christ became a substitute on the cross to pay the price for your sin and for mine. And everything that he did was for the advantage and benefit of everyone who comes to personal faith in Christ. Now, in light of those important purposes, let's look at verse 27, which leads us to the last thought. The preparation for communion. So, I see that there's the possibility of problems when we come together. There is the purpose of communion that Christ established. Paul's saying, I didn't create the purpose for communion. It came from Christ. And the last thing he talks about is this need for preparation. Okay, what was happening in Corinth? Probably this. They got caught up in the lifestyle of the world around them. Social stratification was the norm. To have divisions and cliques, all kinds of lines drawn through the society based on all kinds of things was the norm. I think we can see that in the world that we live in too. But when the church comes together, Paul's saying, look, all those divisions are gone because we all get together with one hope, from one work of one Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this last thought is this. How do I prepare to participate in something this significant and magnificent? How do I ready my heart to receive elements that speak the greatest truth that a human being could ever speak? Verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now, that's one of those passages that when you read it, you're like, okay, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means that when we partake of the symbols, okay, when I partake of the broken bread that symbolizes the broken body of Christ, and when I partake of the cup which symbolizes the shed blood of Christ for my sin... They are loaded with meaning. They are loaded with glorious truth. So strongly loaded that when we do this, we're proclaiming Christ's death until He comes. Announcing over and over the blood of Christ, the body of Christ for sinners shed. Okay, every time we do it, that's what we're doing. He says, if you do it in an unworthy way, in a way that doesn't accurately recognize what these symbols mean... You drink judgment upon yourself, which is, to me, a very strong and sobering statement. Become guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Now, there was a time in our country when the American flag was something that was protected and treated in a very specific set of ways. There were, if you will, protocols that were to be observed when you were handling the flag. Unfortunately, our country has lost that. Our country has lost the value of the meaning of symbols and memorials. Why? Because we as a country have become very individualistic, right? It's about us. It's about my rights. And I have the right to burn the flag, therefore I can. But the reason a, an average American is offended when someone burns the flag is because we look at that flag as a symbol of freedom. 
And we realize that the freedoms that we have symbolized in that flag were purchased by the blood of people who died to make us free. And so when someone denigrates the flag, you have something that rises up in you and says, don't you know what that means? Okay? When an Olympian takes the flag and runs around the track with it, after winning an event, what are they saying? I am proud of my country and what it stands for. When we come to the Lord's table, folks, please understand this. It is a memorial. It is a symbol that speaks of the greatest truth that human lips could ever utter. And Paul says, if we do it in a way that shows disregard for the unity that is purchased by the body and blood of Christ, we put ourselves, just quite frankly, in a dangerous position with God. We call down on our head God's wrath. I mean, that's how serious the Lord's table is to God. We will be guilty of sinning against what these elements speak of and what the Savior did. Verse 31, he goes on to say, or verse 28, he says, A man ought to examine himself, for he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord each and drinks judgment on himself. I want you to notice a difference from verse 27 down to verse 29. There's a difference. The first time Paul talks about judgment coming, it's because of disregarding the body and blood of Christ. Right? And he mentions both elements of the Lord's table. Okay? Because those elements are the means by which sinners are purchased and placed into what? The church, which... The New Testament calls what? If you go to the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, the body of Christ. In Corinth, what were they really denigrating? What were they really demeaning? When they split the church into pieces, you know what they were demeaning? They were demeaning what the body and blood of Christ purchased to become the new body of Christ on earth, the church. Does that make sense? So verse 27, if somebody partakes of the elements without giving thought to what Christ did for them, there's a judgment there. But if someone partakes of the elements without re recognizing and discerning the body of Christ, which I believe refers to the church, go back up to verse 17 and 18, that's where the damage is being done. Without discerning, is the, the idea of without regarding is the word to discern. To see through what the body of Christ is really about. What are we? We're a group of people who have been freed from sin, brought into a new relationship, a new community, a new family, a new body, a new house, by the body and blood of Christ. And what Paul is saying is, if you partake of those elements while harboring in your heart resentment toward the church that Christ purchased, you again bring judgment on yourself. So when we come to the Lord's table, verse 28 gives us this call. The examination. A call to self-examination is given in verse 28. A man ought to examine himself. And I think it's, it's so powerful what Paul says here. Individuals have a responsibility to maintain their relationship with God. And how they maintain their relationship with God has an effect on the broader work that God is doing through his body. Because the body of Christ that he purchased is made up of many believers and many parts. So he says, when you come to the Lord's table, and this morning, here's my call to you this morning. Each one of us 
ought to, and the idea here is in the imperative again, we have a responsibility before God to examine our hearts to see if there is anything that is divisive, bitter, resentful, that would destroy the body of Christ and show disregard for the elements of the Lord's table. And if, as we conduct that examination, we find a need, I believe the up thrust of this passage is very clear. Examine yourself, and then when I go back to verses 24 and 25, I find an imperative. Eat this bread and drink this cup. So you say, Pastor Tim, what's the thrust of that? I believe the thrust of the Lord's table is this. Every time we come and enjoy elements that speak of grace, forgiveness, and freedom from sin, what God wants us to do is to look into our own hearts to see if we can find evidence of rebellion against God, evidence of disregard for the church of Christ, evidence of resentment against a brother or sister, a mate, a child. He wants us to examine our own hearts. Why? So that when we find sin, what do we do? We confess it. We don't harbor it. We don't hide it. In other words, in the tradition I was raised in, here's kind of the way it went at communion. pastor would get up after the service was done in terms of the, the, the preaching of the Word of God. And he would give us a call to self-examination. And he'd say something like this. If in examining your heart this morning you find unconfessed sin, then you should not partake of the Lord's table. How many of you heard it put in that way? That's the way I heard it my whole life. Okay? I think that's contrary to what this text is saying. If verses 25 and 26 give us a command from Christ to eat this bread and drink this cup, remembering him, then I think the implication of verse 28 is this. That when we gather together to observe the Lord's table like this, what Christ wants us to do is so see his cross work that we can't stand the thought of harboring sin in our hearts. And that we cry out to God for forgiveness so that we can then obey the command to participate in the elements of the Lord's table. See, I don't think God's intent is that Tim Hoff would stand here, examine his heart, and say, okay, I can't take because I found sin in my heart. Be like, to what end then? To what end? See, I think the call to the church is examine your heart. Do it individually. And let me say this, no matter what sin you find in your heart this morning, there is hope for you. Because the blood of Christ was shed to take away your sin, all of it. And the body of Christ was broken to pay the price for your sin. So it doesn't matter where you're coming from this morning. Okay? His blood can cleanse us from all sin. So don't be afraid to examine. But when you examine, don't, don't go away saying, well, I found sin in my heart, so I can't really enjoy my relationship with God. God's intent when he calls you to examine is that you would confess that sin and re-engage with him because of what Christ has done. Because if as a blood-bought Christian, I tolerate known sin in my heart, what am I doing? I'm living in disregard for the body and blood of Christ. Because the means of my forgiveness has been made available through the work of Christ on the night in which he was betrayed. And what he wants me to do is to examine my heart, find the issue that's there. I don't know what your issue is today. I don't know what sin issue God wants to point at in your heart from your private life. I know this. Nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Nothing. You don't have it. Sitting where you are this morning, there is not one sin that God doesn't already know about. What he wants you to do is go and find it. And confess it and put it under the blood of Christ. And then participate in those elements that proclaim that I am forgiven, not on the basis of anything in myself, but on the basis of what Christ has so gloriously, freely, and richly 
done for me. So can I ask you this morning, as we prepare our hearts right now for the Lord's table, to receive the elements that speak a better word, as we sung earlier, the blood of Christ speaks a better word. It speaks forgiveness. It speaks righteousness. It speaks life change. It speaks the body of Christ at large. This text goes on to say this. It says if we judge ourselves, and I think the idea is if we examine our own hearts, I don't have to fear the judgment of God. But if you look into your heart this morning as a child of God's and you identify sin and you say, you know what, I'm not willing to deal with it. And then you make a choice to participate in the symbols of forgiveness without participating in it. I think you call on yourself the judgment of God. And Paul goes on to say, for this cause, many are sick and weak among you and many have died. That's how severe it got in Corinth. I don't want it to get that severe in my life. So examine your heart. Find what you need to confess and confess it. And then as we share together, come, take the elements back to your seat. And we're going to sing a song of giving thanks to the Lord. And then receive those elements together, giving thanks to him for what he's done for us. Let's bow our heads together this morning.